Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Foundations here at Hickory Grove. So good to see so many of you join us yet again as we continue our six-week study, which I've entitled Understanding the Bible. It's the most simplistic way I know how to convey our course of study. In, in short, we're midway through a six-week series on how to rightly interpret, understand the Bible, how to make sense of that which often doesn't make sense. I know so many of you, like me, time and again, harbor this weird, odd insecurity when it comes to reading the Word. You open it tomorrow morning, you lay it on your lap, you start reading, and you're lost within 30 seconds. And you give up, and you rinse and repeat the next day, and you think, well, maybe I'll try a different book. You get a little further, but then you just feel like, I don't, I'm not getting stuff out of this. That best-selling devotional that I saw at the end of the bookstore stand, that, that just speaks to me more. I think I'll just, I'll just do that and I'll let the preacher tell me what the Bible means. This class, by God's grace, is designed to help disabuse you of that notion, to help you think differently about the Bible. I want you, Lord willing, to see that it is possible for you to understand it. It is within your grasp to make sense of God's word. Indeed, it's an actual command of Christ. He has commissioned you. He has called you, not merely just me, to be a student of the word. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, this is the banner text. I even have it printed at the top of your notes each night of this uh, session. Study, the Bible says, to show yourself approved unto God, a worker that has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling the word of truth. That, in other words, says you should work really hard to be somebody who could stand before God and say, I have given the effort to understand your word. And what I've tried to do is, as simplistically as I know how, convey six basic skills that anybody can grasp. If you've got two eyes and a brain, you can practice these six skills to become a sharper student of God's Word. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, this will be by way of review. For those of you that haven't, just as a brief recap, the first skill that I submitted to you was admittedly a little odd, and that is the skill to see. You need to learn to see. You need to learn to observe that which you are prone to eh, see but not really see. You guys know this to be true, of course, in your lives. So many of you don't know how many houses are on your street, though you look at them every day. You don't know how many branches are on your tree, though you see them in your front yard almost every morning. You don't remember what your wife wore to church Sunday, but you were sitting right next to her on Sunday. So often we see, but we don't really see. We're not paying attention to the details. And I, my first skill is you just need to slow down and look. See what's already there. Observe what the Bible says, and what that might prove to you is a thousand things you don't know. And that is a very fruitful exercise to just get out a pen, a piece of paper, and to write down, I don't understand what this word means. I don't understand what this is talking about. I don't get this. I want to know more about this place. I, I don't know. I know that sounds a little ridiculous, but the truth is just take it from me. If you actually do this it's amazing how much it will not only get you interested in the Bible, it will compel you to go find the answers. If you don't do it, you won't go looking for the answers. You'll just throw your hands up and say, I'm not smart enough. I'm not educated enough. Pastor Kyler, Pastor Clint, they know it. I'll just wait and hear what they think about this. You can do this yourself if you first learn to see. Now, the trick is, though, the Bible, God's revelation to us, inexplicably. There's a variety of ways God could have revealed himself to us. He could have revealed himself to us in a fantastic visual sense, like he did for 33 years with incarnate Jesus walking the face of the earth. Why did he reveal himself to us in words? That's not an answer we'll be able to determine decisively this side of eternity, but we can at least know this much. Since God chose to reveal himself to us in words. It's incumbent upon us to learn how to read words. 
Now, I know all of us in here are literate. I don't mean to suggest y'all don't know how to read, but the truth is both you and I tend to be sloppy readers. I've asked this before. Let's do it one more time by a show of hands. How many of you guys must admit when you start reading, you'll be getting five minutes in and you're like, I have no idea what I've just read the last five minutes. I do this all the time. It's amazing how you can literally be verbalizing words as you're moving through a page and you're like, you know what? Somehow I was able, I have a beautiful mind. I was able to literally read those words out loud and think about my grocery list. It's crazy how you can do that. It's easy to read, but not really read, which is why I submitted to you a second skill you need to learn. And that was last week's lesson. You need to learn to read. And I actually gave you guys, I think it was 10 different principles that if you start putting these into practice slowly but surely, it will make you a better reader. It'll help you comprehend, retain that which you read. I don't remember if I said this, but just so you guys don't think this is too ridiculous, when I entered my PhD program almost 10 years ago, do you want to know what the first book of the hundreds of books I was required to read was? The first book, this wasn't an undergrad level, it wasn't even in my master's level. It was at the PhD level. The first book was a book entitled How to Read a Book. And you want to know something, dear friends? Of the hundreds of books I read in my PhD, perhaps the most formative, the most fruitful one I read was that book, How to Read a Book. It is amazing how we are prone to forget or never even really be aware of the most simple basic skills of comprehending literature, just words. And so brothers and sisters, I commend you, learn to see and learn to read. But this leads us to a third skill tonight, which I dare say is the most critical of the six I will submit to you. And before I explain this third skill, why don't you join me as we pray and let's ask God to help me and to help you as together we seek to be better students of his word. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I'm asking now that you would come and speak in and through me. Would you allow me the grace to edify my brothers and sisters, to stir their soul, to want your word, to desire it, to pant for it like a deer pants for water, to taste and see that you're good. I pray that they would, because of this seminar, find the Bible be as sweet as honey from the honeycomb. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you guys have ever heard that in the market of real estate, there are three key considerations you should take into account when you're looking to buy a home? There's three things any realtor worth his salt will tell you. She will tell you that when it comes to finding a house, the most important three considerations are what? Location. Location. Y'all know it. And most of you homeowners know that that is true. I don't care how nice your bathroom is. If you got bad neighbors, it's not great. When it comes to studying the Bible, I want you to similarly understand with me that the three most critical considerations when it comes to rightly understanding God's word is, for lack of a better word, location, location, location. Now, we don't talk about location in the Bible. That's weird. You're looking at a book. We have a different word to describe the location of any particular text in the book. I want you guys to let this be seared in your mind. When it comes to understanding the Bible, you need to take these three considerations most seriously. Context, context, context. Context is king. When you are trying to make sense of any verse, any paragraph, any chapter, any book of the Bible, the most critical thing you need to take into account is its context. When you go to seminary, you'll often hear it bantered around that context is king. And that's because the truth is, if you get the context wrong, you're going to get a lot wrong. For example, do you realize that most cults began with reading a verse out of context. 
Even some major world religions have key doctrines built around reading something in the Christian Bible out of context. Tonight, I'm going to explain just that. All the various ways we tend to take verses out of context. And I want to submit to you a few reasons why you need to remember that context is king. A few reasons why you need to learn the context. And what I want to do is I want to show you that whenever you're reading the Bible, you're going to start small. What is the smallest thing you could look at in any particular uh, Bible passage? I dare say it's the word itself. You could zoom all the way down to a word. And if you don't consider the context of just a little word, you can get really, really off course. If you don't believe me, take this as an example. What do I mean when I say, that's a large trunk. You know what I mean by that? I could be referring to a large tree trunk. I could be referring to a large vehicular trunk. I could be referring to a large elephant trunk. I could even be referring to your grandma's trunk, you know, those big... Uh, we use it as a coffee table in my house growing up, but it's like it opens up and it's like a big treasure chest. We call it gra Granny's trunk in my house. How do you know which one I'm referring to? And the truth is, you won't. You can't unless somebody comes and gives you a little bit of context. You need another sentence before it or another sentence after it to have any shot at making sense of that simple word Trunk. I wonder how many of you tonight thought, well, man, I wasn't thinking that I didn't know how to define the word trunk. It's amazing how the simplest of words can become crazy difficult to understand outside of context. How many of you mothers in this room have had one of your teenagers run up to you and yell, Mom, I'm starving. Well, what does that child mean by that statement? You need some context. It could just mean they're hungry and a little dramatic. But maybe there's some context clues that will tell you, oh my word, my child's emaciated. Somehow, some way, he has not been able to eat. He is indeed starving. i got to feed this kid. Context, in other words, my friends, is key. you, you got to have some other information to help put things together. How many of you have ever... Uh, Maybe you heard a child and your, one of your children yell out, Stop, you're killing me! And what does that mean? Maybe it means that they're getting tickled and they're like, Dad, stop, you're killing me! Or maybe they're playing video games with their brother and he yells, Stop, you're killing me in this game! Or maybe, heaven forbid, something horrific is happening. Their life is in jeopardy and they're crying out in blood earnestness, Stop, you're killing me. How would you know? You can't know apart from context. And I wonder how many of you came tonight thinking, well, I wasn't expecting to have trouble defining the word trunk, defining the word killing, defining the word starving. And the truth is, you can't get it apart from the context. And this happens all the time in the Bible. People get words themselves wrong all the time because they read it and they make a bunch of assumptions about just a simple word in the Bible, and they rip it straight out of their context. Here's a great example. Jesus in the Gospel of John promises that a helper is coming. In the Greek, it's the word paraclete, a helper. Do you guys know who that helper is of which Jesus speaks? Well, the context, of course, tells us that he's referring to the Holy Spirit. But do you know how the religion of Islam defines the helper? They understand the helper to be Muhammad. They believe that the helper who is to come after Jesus is the great final prophet who would come and make clear to all what Jesus only revealed in part. Now the truth is, why do you guys believe my interpretation and not the imam leading a mosque down the road? Is it just because you like me better? 
What, like, why am I right and he's wrong? How is there a way to determine who's right here? And the truth is there actually is. And it's called context. Simple context clues would force any imam to recognize that is a poor reading of the word helper. There is no context clues in the Gospel of John to suggest that Jesus was referring to anybody other than the Spirit of God. Another cult was, has been built around a uh, wrong reading of a word. Anybody ever met a Jehovah's Witness come knocking at your door? Jehovah's Witnesses actually have their own translation of the Bible. It's like New World Translation or something along those lines, put out by the Watchtower Society. And when you go read John 1 and verse 1, that's a verse you all know well, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word Do you know what that Bible says? The Word was a God. Now, why does it say that? Because they have wrongly read that particular word out of context. They have imported their own theology into the original language. And the original language does not say it. But because it lacks a definite article, they assume in the original language that it wouldn't be saying the God. They just assume an a God. Well, it could be any old God. And consequently, they believe Jesus is not actually one with God the Father. They believe Jesus is basically a man who takes on some deified status, who was originally Michael the archangel. It's amazing how you can go really astray just with a word. Our Roman Catholic friends have unfortunately done similarly. Roman Catholic theology is centered around one particular man of whom they believe is the leader or the papa of their church, the papa we know as the pope, the bishop of Rome. How did the bishop of Rome, 2,000 some odd years ago nearly, become regarded as the papa of the church, as the guy who gets to break all the debates? It is largely rooted in a misreading of a word. When Jesus, we're actually going to see this this coming Sunday when we read uh, the Bible, when we, when we uh, preach through Mark. When Jesus confronts Peter and Peter makes a confession of Christ, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus looks at Peter and says, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Well, Roman Catholics have long interpreted that word rock to be referring to Peter, because Petros means rock. So they just assume it's saying, you are Peter, and on Peter, I'm going to build my church. And they have assumed that Peter, who was the first, the so-called first bishop of the Church of Rome, he was the guy who God appointed to be the leader of the church, and everybody that comes after Peter would become the leader of the church, the pope. But actually, if you read the original language in context, you are forced to conclude that that word rock is not referring to Peter himself, but his confession. What God is building his church on is not the man, it's on confessing Christ. The text context demands that we conclude that Jesus is building his church with people who have faith in him. People who, like Peter, confess Jesus as the Lord. And so, you need to learn the context because if not, you're going to end up misinterpreting words. But most of you don't wake, aren't going to wake up tomorrow and just do a word study. That's not a great way to do Bible study. Most of you are going to at least back out a little and try to make sense of phrases within the Bible. And the truth is, we often get phrases wrong too. When you're, a phrase is like a part of a sentence. It's not really the whole sentence typically. It's just part of one. And do you know how often parts of verses get messed up when they're taken out of context? For example, there was once a newspaper magazine that had a beautiful picture of the Grand Teton Mountains. And under the Grand Teton Mountain landscape, it had a Bible verse. This is like something straight out of Hobby Lobby. And this verse said... Look to the hills from whence comes my strength. Now, isn't that inspiring? Some of you are like, man, pastor, that preaches to me. 
I like outdoors. I, I like feeling invigorated. And you know, I get strength from the mountains. I, I bought that pillow. I got that pillow on my couch right now. Or you know what? I just love it. I'm going to give that to my mother for Christmas. But here's the problem. Though that might be a relatively innocent, inspirational thought, that is not what that psalm is saying at all. Do you know why? Because you didn't read the rest of the sentence. The clause starts, I look to the hills from whence comes my strength. But what is the very next phrase? My strength or help comes from the the mountains? Comes from the Lord. (laughs) I mean, it just completely skewers Hobby Lobby's whole... uh, Enterprise. That is not what that verse means. And so just remember, you, it's actually pretty easy to just rip a phrase of a sentence right out of context and get the meaning wrong altogether. Here's another phrase that gets messed up all the time. How many of you have ever heard somebody on TV say, well, doesn't the Bible say judge not? Now, the problem is when read out of context, that sounds... Like Jesus told us in Matthew 7, never judge anybody or anything under any circumstances, period. And a lot of liberal Christians basically teach that. But when read out of context, maybe that sounds good because it actually kind of fits with our cultural norm of, hey, don't ever tell anybody they're wrong. But the truth is when you read it in context, you actually are quickly confronted with some hard realities that when Jesus was saying that, he was basically saying, don't be a hypocrite that is judgmental towards everybody else and painfully unaware of the plank sticking out of your own eyes, so to speak. But he clearly judges and he clearly calls us to make value judgments time and again. When read out of context, that verse can mean anything you want it to mean. When read in context, all of a sudden you realize, you know what, that phrase actually has some meaning that's limited. Here's another one you might hear. You ever heard somebody on TV say, well, wait a minute, don't you know the Bible says that God is love? Which is true. First John tells us actually several times God is love. But when read out of context, you might conclude that that means God always affirms what I think. Or God will always affirm whatever you like. God loves what you love. And that is not what that verse means when read in context. It's quite clear that God's love is actually defined. His love is not altogether different from a parent's love. Any parent worth their salt that loves a child, loves their child with rules and boundaries, gives them what they need, does not give them what they don't need, often has to tell them no. And that's one of the most loving things a parent can do is discipline a child. In fact, the Proverbs tell us that if a parent doesn't discipline their child, they hate their child and are condemning their child to hell. That is hard. And that was from the Spirit of God telling us this. The truth is, when the Bible says God is love, he is not saying God is just cool with whatever you're cool with. You need to know the context lest you misinterpret words, you misinterpret phrases. But now let's widen out a little more. It's like we're zooming out here. Now let's consider verses. When it comes to actual verses in the Bible, it's actually pretty easy to get these uh, out of whack as well. For example, there's a verse in 1 John 3 in verse 9 that reads like this. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And when read out of context, there have been several people that have concluded the following. The Bible teaches that if you're a Christian, you'll never sin. You're not a sinner. You can be perfect. There are some that actually teach that this side of eternity, you can be sanctified to the point where you'll become perfectly holy, which I want to know who actually thinks that, and I want to get to know you. (laughs) Who is that? I mean, I know me. I I preach this Sunday to you all. The more I walk with the Lord, the more I see myself as a sorry sinner. I have my word. I don't see myself as more holy. The funny thing about that verse is those conclusions were drawn without reading the verse right before it. Do you want to know what verse 8 of 1 John 3 says? Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. My word, how can you conclude that a Christian is sinless if the verse right before says, well, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. 
No Christian makes a practice of sinning. The point is, we're all sinners, but a Christian doesn't habitually make a practice of it. A Christian is not one who says, I don't care. I'll sin all the more so that grace may abound. You know, God's a God of forgiveness, so I'm going to do what I want and, you know, just ask for forgiveness later. You understand what I'm saying? You read it out of context, quite easy to go astray. Here's another odd example. There's a verse in the Gospels that is often taken out of context by people. This verse reads as following. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because in them you believe you have eternal life. Now, Jesus is speaking to these men, and when he uses the word scriptures, what is he talking about? He can't be talking about the New Testament because it wasn't developed yet. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. And if you just read that part of the verse, you might conclude, well, Jesus just said the Old Testament is no good. You search the scriptures, you search the Old Testament because you think in them you have eternal life. So Jesus just told us the Old Testament's no good. It's worthless. It doesn't tell us the gospel. It doesn't show us who Jesus is. The problem is the very next phrase, guess what Jesus says? Jesus says, and it is these scriptures that bear witness about me. <laughs> I mean, the very next phrase, he says, hey, you search them because you think you have eternal life, but you actually think you have eternal life in somebody other than me. The Old Testament actually screams that I'm the one you've been waiting for. The point is, it's very easy to make even a verse say whatever you want it to mean. Now let's zoom out just a little bit further. Let's consider now whole passages of the Bible. This is where it's going to start getting uncomfortable. I'm about to crush somebody's Sunday school lesson from a couple years ago, and I apologize. I've preached plenty of things that I wish I hadn't before, too. We all do this from time to time. How many of you have ever claimed as a life verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And you're like, man, I want to prosper. I don't want to be harmed. My child needs a hope and a future. Life verse. I, I'm claiming that promise. Now, the problem with that is when you read it out of context, you might think that that is a blanket promise God gives to anybody and everybody who wants it. But the truth is, when you read that passage in context, that is Jeremiah speaking to a specific group of people about a specific reason. He is speaking to Israel under duress, and it is a specific prophecy that God is going to free these people from this period of bondage. Are there principles echoed in other passages that are applied to you and I? Of course. I'm not suggesting God doesn't care about you, that he's not for you, that he doesn't have a good plan for your life. I'm not suggesting that at all. There are other verses that can very easily be applied to us, but this is actually not one of them. Within context, you actually have to take more seriously the fact that this is written not to us, but to a very specific people under a very specific set of circumstances. Or how many of you have ever heard somebody at a wedding say this, wives submit to your husbands. Man, nobody likes that verse. And then they try to soften it. They're like, well, you know, it's not really what it means because one verse prior says you need to submit to one another in the fear of God. So really what Paul is saying is wives submit to husbands and husbands submit to wives. Just submit to one another. And that sounds good. And by the way, well-intentioned, I understand the, the argument, but when you actually read the passage in context, we are forced to grapple with something. You want to know what that is? Verse 22, wives submit to your husbands, is clearly talking about husbands and wives. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the Lord, is not. It's actually talking about the relationship within the body of Christ, within the church. So it's actually talking more about us submitting to one another as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So it forces you to do more work to try to figure out what did Paul mean? Is he just a raging misogynist or what does he mean? Now, this is not 
the point of my message, but for any of you that got your hackles up and you're thinking, oh, what does he believe about this? Just remember, if, the, if you think that's a hard one, now just remember what Paul said to the husband. You remember what he said to the husband? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which basically means go die that she might live. It might mean physically, but at the very least it means your life is no longer your own. You're going to lay your, down li- your life down proverbially for the rest of your life for the sake of your girl. So I would say all things being equal, submitting to your husband and dying to yourself every day for the rest of your life, I feel like that's at least a toss-up. But there, we'll put that on the side for now. That'll be another subject for another day, Okay. You need to understand the context so that you can understand words, phrases, verses, entire passages. But there is actually one more context that most of us forget. And do you recognize that when it comes to interpreting the Bible, you actually really do need to think about the context of like the b- books of the Bible altogether? You actually need to consider the whole book. For example, if you don't do this, you might do your devotional study, you're reading through Genesis, you power through Exodus, and you get to Leviticus, and you're like, well, my word, I need to go sacrifice some lambs. I didn't know this. And I got to go do all these washings. And you're thinking, well, pastor, why? I mean, he commanded us to. Why shouldn't I do this? And of course, when read out of context, you might conclude that you need to do this. But in context, a Christian knows that all that ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ. And we no longer do that because there is a final sacrifice in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But if you don't read it in that context, you might think that where's our altar? Why don't we do this? Or for example, how many of you have ever read the book of James? And in the second chapter of James, he says some things that are so odd, it makes you wonder if he disagrees with the Apostle Paul. James tells us that we are saved by faith and good works. And you're like, whoa, I thought Paul teaches us that man's saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Does James disagree with Paul? Some people have struggled so long through this that even Martin Luther, the famed reformer, he thought James shouldn't be in the Bible because of this. He was so thrown off by this, but if you read it in context, you will very quickly realize that James is not saying you're actually saved by a mixture of trusting Jesus and then doing a lot of good stuff like Roman Catholic doctrine teaches. He's teaching this. You actually are trusting Jesus. You actually do have faith if you are doing these things. That fruit proves there's a root. There is no, you will never have a tree bear fruit in your yard that doesn't have good roots. The roots are only demonstrated by the fruits of the tree growing. And if the tree starts dying, it's proof to you that the roots are no longer there or they're no longer good or healthy. That's the whole point he's making. So he's not actually saying you're saved by a mixture of it. He's saying you're saved by faith and you'll prove it through the way you live. And that is, by the way, not just mentioned by James. That's all throughout the Bible. Incidentally, a really good principle of interpreting the Bible is if something reads funny, go see what else the Bible has to say about it. Because the Bible never contradicts itself. Scripture is its own best interpreter. It was inspired by the Spirit. It will never contradict. So remember, you need to know the context if you want to understand the whole book itself. That's why some people wrongly think there's two gods in the Bible. There's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. Have you ever noticed that the God of the Old Testament appears different? He doesn't appear like the meek and mild Jesus. He appears kind of like a strong, vindictive, transcendent God. And then you flip the page to Matthew and all of a sudden it becomes like almost the hippie Jesus. And then Paul kind of talks about it in too much of a heady way. And then all of a sudden he becomes like the warrior coming in on the white horse at the end of the Bible. If you read those out of context, you might assume that there are multiple gods. In fact, there are many theologians throughout the history, heretical ones, who tried to argue that it was a different God in the Old Testament. There were some that would cut out the Old Testament and say the only books you need are the new because the old are not presenting the true God. And that is obviously wrong because you are reading it outside of context. In fact, if you read a hard passage describing one of God's judgments in the Old Testament, 
Just turn a couple pages and you are going to now encounter a God that is exactly like Jesus, who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and is of utmost patience, long-suffering, and compassion. My friends, you, you got, you got, you got to remember the three most critical considerations when it comes to studying the Bible. Context, context, context. And so the big question we'll conclude our study tonight with is the big pragmatic how. How do you do this? How do you get the context right when you're reading the Bible? How do you make sure you're not misinterpreting words and phrases and clauses and verses and passages and books of the Bible themselves? Well, I want to submit to you a few ways we can do this. These are somewhat conceptual. I understand it'd be easier if we actually had a Bible passage open together and just tried to pick it apart. Time doesn't permit me. I wish I could. I wish I had that old school. Do you ever sometimes think that technology has gotten too far ahead of itself? And if only we had the old overhead projector. Y'all remember that? Some of you, uh, maybe around my generation where your teacher always had marker all over her hand and up her wrist because she would write on the overhead projector. Kim, did you ever do the overhead projector? Yeah. If I had one of those, I would totally demonstrate this tonight, but I don't, and I don't have the fancy technology where it would be popped up on the screen. I just want you to consider with me a few principles to help you when you're reading any particular passage make sense of it in context. The first one I want you to consider is when you're reading any passage of the Bible, you need to actually study the words in it. So, for example, you go to, let's just use John 3.16, because I know most of us know that one by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, when you go to it, you need to make sure you understand what it means. So, for example, what does the word world mean? Does that mean God so loved every single person on planet Earth that he died for them and they have eternal life? What, what does it mean? Is that what it means? Is that what world means? What does perish mean? Does it mean physically die, spiritually die? You need to go look it up and you're thinking, all right, Kyler, well, I don't know the answers. I don't know Greek. I don't know Hebrew. How am I supposed to figure it out? And here's the good news. How many of you have the World Wide Web? We all got internet access these days. And there is a treasure trove of free resources at your fingertips that I want to encourage you to access. If you have an iPad or an iPhone, you can get apps for this as well. A couple websites. I want to give you two. Write these down in your margin if you're so inclined. One is called Bible Hub. Bible Hub. H-U-B. I think it's .com. You go to Bible Hub and you can find almost any word study information you want. You go to that website and say, I want to know what this word means in John 3.16. And it will pull it right up and tell you exactly Here's another resource that offers pretty similar resources. Blue Letter Bible. Y'all ever heard of it? Blue Letter Bible. I believe it's .com too. Should have written down if it was .com or org. Y'all have figured it out. You go look that up. Both of those resources are free, and I use those more than any other resource when it comes to sermon prep. It is a wonderful trove of information to help me make sense of God's words. If you want to understand the words of the Bible, just go look those up. Since most of you don't know the Greek or Hebrew, it'll explain it all for you, and you don't have to read the original. It's all in English. Good news. So just go read it. It'll help you make sense of the various words. Also, it's important that as you're looking at your passage, point out important words. Do you want to know what's a really good practice when it comes to studying the Bible? I know most of you, it's been long enough since you were in English class, you don't remember most parts of speech. I'm under, I understand that. I've forgotten it too. But most of us know at least these two things, subjects and verbs. The subject does the talking, the verb does the walking. We remember a subject is a noun, it's a person or object, it's something. And then the verb is whatever's happening. Go look at all the subjects and go look at all the verbs. The verbs usually are telling. For God, there's a subject, loved. Okay, love's a big word. Why did he use the word loved? God so loved the world. I want to find out what he means by love, that he gave. What does it mean to give his only son? Of course, we know theologically what he's referring to, but you should look it up. Why did he use the word gave only son? And son is a noun there. That's a subject. What do we do with this word, uh, with this person, the son? Think about those words. It's going to slow you down and help you start thinking through what did the spirit mean when he gave us all these words? Now let's zoom out a little. 
How do you make sense of the context of the paragraph itself? Well, here's a couple suggestions. Let's say you're reading a passage of the Bible and it just doesn't make a lot of sense to you. A good skill to practice is to just try and rewrite that paragraph in your own words. Just sit there and say, Pastor, I don't know what this means, so I'm going to take my best stab at trying to say it in my own words. It'll be a really bad translation, probably burn it when you're done, it's okay, but it'll slow you down and make you start thinking about the Bible. If that feels like too much work, and that's okay, that you may not have time, here's one thing that I commend each of you to do. I do this in my Bible all the time. After you read a paragraph, write in the margin of your paragraph, what's the main idea here? What did that paragraph just say? If I could say it in a sentence or a phrase, what did this paragraph mean? Write it down. That'll slow you down and make you think, well, what's going on here? For example, today in my devotions, I finished the book of Isaiah. I'm not preaching it. It's for nobody but my own sorry soul. And as I'm reading through Isaiah 63 through 66 in my wide margin Bible, in my margins, every paragraph I would summarize with a little statement of what I thought that paragraph means. It's in my chicken scratch. Nobody else can read it. It's not something I would ever publish, but it slowed me down to help me think about what I'm reading. Try it tomorrow. Just whatever paragraph you read, see if you can put it in a sentence, put it in a phrase. What does that mean? And it might be, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what this means, but Lord, help me know it next time, the sort of deal. You write it out. It'll slow you down. Okay, now let's zoom out a little bit more. Let's talk about a whole chapter now. So when you're trying to make sense of a chapter, perhaps you just read in the Bible, here's the first thing. Don't read it one time and expect to understand it. You probably won't. I sure don't. I have to read and reread and reread to understand. So slowly read it and then read it again. If you didn't understand it on Monday, go back and reread it on Tuesday. It is totally good to just reread the Bible and then after you feel like you now are understanding generally what that chapter is trying to say, maybe you've looked up some other resources online to help you make sense of it, then write out in the margin what you think that chapter is saying. You can just make a little summary statement of, here's what I think this chapter means. Maybe you're like me. Some of you aren't wired this way, and so don't feel guilty. But for you more left-brain analytical types, you might want to try outlining it. Now, outlining it is you're trying to think through, well, what are all the things this chapter is saying? I want to make it look visual. Many of you guys often ask how I'm able to preach without notes. I don't memorize my sermons. I put literally zero effort into memorizing it. I have kind of a photographic memory, but not really. I, 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 I wish I did, and I really don't. Here's what I do. When I'm preparing a sermon, I prepare it in an outline form. It's logical for me. It's going from point A to point B to point C. And by God's grace, whether I'm up here or at the pulpit here, when I start preaching, I know where I'm going. All of my thoughts make sense to me logically. So I'm going from point A to point B to point C. It's kind of like how you guys drive home. You all drive home and you're not actually thinking about directions. Most of you probably don't need Google Maps to get home. You just know the way home. It's logical. Some of you are so attuned to it that you'll get home and you're like, oh my word, I, how am I already home? You ever had that happen where you're driving and you're like, how did I get this far? It's just so second nature. When I'm preaching, it feels that way for me. It's like I can almost see my outline in my head. It's the logical sequence of things to where right now, if I were to stop, I could actually start preaching my sermon from Sunday. And it's not because I memorized it. I didn't memorize any of it. It's because it was so logically in my heart. And that can actually happen for you too. If you just slow down and try to think through, what are the things this paragraph is trying to say? Put it in your own words. It might be as simple as this part's talking about marriage and this part's talking about divorce and this part's talking about tithing. That might be your little outline. Or you might give it a little bit more spin to it and put some more thoughts into it. Try it. Just give it a shot. It's amazing, my friends, what it will do for you. Okay, now let's keep going. Let's zoom out one more time, and let's think about the whole book. How many of you have ever read a book of the Bible, and you're like, I did it. 
Couldn't tell you one thing it said, but I did it. I read it. You ever feel that way? You're like, it feels like you, you, it was an accomplishment enough just to get through the thing, but you have no idea. Some of you have probably read the book of, you know, 1 John 15 times in your life and still couldn't tell me one thing it says. You don't know what it means. Well, here's what could help you. As you read through a book, first off, you should try reading it quickly. I mean, sit down and just read it. Don't try to make sense of it all. Read it at a normal talking pace. Just read through it. You can actually do this. I think I might have mentioned this a week or so ago. Uh, it's actually amazing how quickly you can get through most of the Bible. It doesn't take that much time to get through most of the books. There are several that are long, and that would take, they would take you a few days of sitting down. But most books of the Bible can be read in under a half hour. Just sit down and read the whole thing, because it's amazing what you'll get having the whole picture in front of you. See if you can figure out what the main idea of the book is. What was Paul's main point to the church at Rome, in your own opinion? What was Paul's main point to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians? Did Luke have an angle in the book of Acts? What is Jude all about? See if you can make a summary statement. Then check it. Go online and see what other people say. A great website. By the way, this is just a tremendous website if you ever want to know anything about a book of the Bible. Let's say you're about to read Habakkuk. You're like, Pastor, I can't spell it. I can barely pronounce it, and I sure don't know where it is. I don't know anything about Habakkuk. Go online. I want all of you to do this. When you read a book of the Bible, go online, go to Google or whatever your browser is, type in the name of the book and three little letters after it. Habakkuk, hit the space bar, and then type in the letters G-T-Y. The letters G-T-Y are shorthand for grace to you. John MacArthur's pretty world-renowned ministry based out of uh, Grace Community Church, Master's College and Seminary in California. Their website is a treasure trove of information. And if you Google the name of the book with the letters G-T-Y, the first search result every single time on your search browser will be a hyperlink to a book, 1 Corinthians or Habakkuk, you'll click it, and you're going to have a page telling you everything you would ever want to know about that book of the Bible. It'll tell you the main idea, who wrote it, when it was written, to whom it was written. It'll outline the book for you. It'll give you every major question you wanted answered. It'll be there. Now, here's the good news. If you have a study Bible, all that information's in your study Bible. So if you'd rather just look at the old pen and paper, look at the hard copy, get you a good study Bible, okay? Go to that website. It'll help you make sense of the whole book, all right? And then lastly, just remember this. I want to encourage you to study the whole Bible, not just chapters, because the Bible really is a hyperlinked book. If you look at the Bible, you will discover that the Bible references itself so many times that guess what? The whole thing is proven to be interconnected. Are any of you guys familiar with a philosopher, a modern day philosopher who's become quite famous He's not a Christian, but he flirts with Christianity at length. His name is Jordan Peterson. Familiar with Jordan Peterson? Jordan Peterson went viral recently speaking about the Bible. He threw up a graphic on one of his you know, talks, and this graphic illustrated how interconnected the Bible is. His point was, this book is a miracle. This didn't just happen. I don't know that he's ascribing it to God. He's, he is he's agnostic. He's still trying to figure out what he believes. But he is even confronting, brilliant as he is, with the fact that this book, there's no way it just happened. Every one of these books is interconnected. It's citing one another, and it was written by 39 to 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. That doesn't just happen. Imagine if you and your spouse just tried to write something together. Y'all wouldn't agree on any of it. It would be, it'd be horrible, and y'all live together. Now imagine that 39 to 40 people that were living in totally different cultures, climates, and at different centuries. It's an amazing miracle, the Scriptures. So study the whole Bible, because you're going to actually discover that Habakkuk has something to say about Matthew. And Matthew has something to say about Genesis. And Genesis has something to say about Revelation. They are all interconnected, which is why we 
implore you, dear brothers and sisters, to become students of the Bible, reading it from cover to cover, from Genesis to the maps. Be a student of the Bible. Now let's conclude our study tonight by commending to you just a few resources, uh, categories of resources that I think you'll want to be aware of. These are the sort of things that will help you do everything I have exhorted you to do. Let me commend a few things to you. The first off one you're surely familiar with is a study Bible. If you don't own one, you need to get one. And if your son or grandchild does not have one, it's an excellent Christmas gift. Study Bibles are a great gift that is only for our generation. They did not exist prior to our generations. They are a relatively new publication, and they're tremendous because if you don't have one, they have light but helpful notes in the footnotes of every page helping you make sense of the Bible. They always have a few pages at the beginning of every book explaining in detail what the book means. Get a good study Bible. You're wondering, well, Pastor, what's a good one? I'm going to give you three recommendations. You ready if you want to write these down? I think the best on the market today is the ESV Study Bible. We have them in our bookstore. I commend it wholeheartedly. I've read all of them, by the way. I've actually devotionally read through every major study Bible on the market because I wanted to be able to actually recommend one and not just like say it because, you know, I don't really know. I just kind of like that one. I wanted to be able to actually say it with integrity. I think the ESV Study Bible is the best on the market. The second one that I think is tremendous is the, here's a key word, Zondervan NIV Study Bible. You have to get the Zondervan edition. There is a non-Zondervan NIV study Bible. I don't think it's that great. But the Zondervan version is excellent. It's relatively new. It has tremendous notes in there. D.A. Carson is its general editor. He is one of the most brilliant New Testament scholars living today. A wonderful resource. Get the Zondervan NIV or the good old Johnny Mac, John MacArthur study Bible. That's a reliable one as well. Uh, his is less detailed in my judgment than some of the others, but it's pretty helpful, and I've referred to it many times when it comes to uh, my own preparation. So those would be my three top study Bibles. But that's not all you need. A few of the tools you might want to consider is a commentary. Now here's the trick. If any of you all have ever been to Clint or I's office, you'll see that I, we have bookshelves, we have surround sound bookshelves covered with commentaries. And if you've ever gone to Amazon to find a commentary, you'll find that one commentary can set you back 40 bucks. And you're thinking, all right, Kyler, by my math, the square footage of your wall covered with commentaries, the value of your commentaries is the value of my first car. I'm not going to be able to invest here. Now, here's the truth. They're not cheap. And most of you won't have the space or the means to invest in a commentary of every book of the Bible. So I want to give you some suggestions. I want to give you some tiered approaches to help you think through what resources might be worth your money. The first one, the most accessible, cheapest version, is they actually publish entire book, uh, forgive me, entire Bible commentaries. It's a commentary on the entire Bible in one volume. It's thick. It makes a good doorstop. I mean, it's no small book. But the one that I recommend more than any other is actually John MacArthur's. I believe it's called the MacArthur Commentary on the Whole Bible or something like that. It's blue, if I recall. I have it in my office. It's a tremendous resource. You should consider it. It's a helpful one to help you make sense of most of the Bible. But it's going to admittedly kind of be like eating an appetizer. It's going to leave you wanting more. You're like, man, where's the entree? I need a little bit more. I need a real commentary. So here's where it gets tricky. Because in my judgment, there's three different kinds of commentaries out there. Commentaries are books on a special book of the Bible. It's an entire published book on a book of the Bible. And there's three different kinds. There's really detailed ones, kind of detailed ones, and the least detailed ones. Let's start with the least, because those are the ones that honestly will probably serve most of you the best. They read somewhat devotionally. These are the ones that if you buy it, It'll answer most of the questions you have, and it won't leave your head spinning. Those are, for example, the Christ-centered exposition series. Do you all remember in the pastor's class years ago, we used to always recommend those little tiny commentaries? That's what that is. Go get those. We have all kinds of them in our bookstore. You can get them on Amazon. They read almost like sermons, and they're excellent, and they're cheap. 
So if you want to know 1 Corinthians better, you can go spend 10 bucks on that book and it will help you understand the Bible better. I actually read the Isaiah version as I was studying through Isaiah devotionally over the last month. I use these too. They're quite helpful. Now, if you want a little bit more, there are some intermediate ones. Uh, these are ones that are detailed, but not so detailed that if you didn't go to seminary, you won't understand it. And those are, uh, for example, the Preaching the Word commentary. They're white. They're really well done. It reads like sermons as well. It's just a lot longer. Preach the Word series. You can go find that. And then thirdly and finally, if you're a glutton for punishment and you want to see the Greek and Hebrew get parsed and you want to know who on earth the Nephilim are and what every opinion on earth is about the Nephilim, if you don't know what that is, it's okay. You need to get the most detailed commentaries. And there's a thousand of them out there. John MacArthur's is a pretty good one. Uh, it's not the most detailed in the world, but there are several out there. Basically, any other commentary on the market, you go Google, it's going to be in that super detailed category. Okay? Consider some commentaries. Very briefly, a few other resources you might just want to think about. Any of you all ever heard of a thing called a concordance? A concordance is helpful because basically what it is, is it's an alphabetical list of biblical words and where they are used in the Bible. So if you see a word, you're like, I want to know what else the Bible has to say about this word. Go to a, com a concordance and it'll tell you. Now here's the good news. I have a list of concordances that I could tell you, but guess what? Utter and complete waste of your money unless you want a good looking book for your bookshelf. Because concordances are free online. Go, there are hundreds of them. Literally just go look it up, type in concord, Bible concordance, you'll have 10 options because it's pretty much public information at this point. It's not in the eye of the beholder. Everybody's widely agreed on what verses say what. So if you want to know where a word is in the Bible, just go Google it and you're going to find it, okay? I have a couple hard copy concordances in my office and I have never opened them. They're just there looking pretty, okay? Now, let's look at one additional resource, what's called a Bible dictionary. A Bible dictionary is helpful because it gives you in-depth definitions of words in the Bible. So, for example, you read the word justification and you're like, what does that mean? Go to a Bible dictionary. It's going to read like an encyclopedia. Maybe you see uh, the word altar. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Because, you know, the preacher talks about come to the altar. Is what? What is that? that? Is that what that looks like? Go look up the Bible dictionary and you're going to see the entire history of an altar. It's actually quite fascinating. It almost reads like Wikipedia. It'll just give you anything you want to know on any of these subjects. And here's the good news. While I could give you a list of recommended ones, it's all free online. So just go Google that word and you can get the answer to any word you want about the Bible on the internet. And then lastly, one resource that you may have not thought you'd need but would be pretty helpful is what they call a Bible atlas. For example, if I were to stand here and for the next 10 minutes describe the interior of my house, I went room by room giving you an oral explanation of my house. You'd know more about my house than you did before tonight, but the truth is most of you'd be thinking, all right, Kyler, just invite me over and let me take a look at it. I'll get a much better picture if I just lay my eyes on it myself. The truth is, we're visual people, and when it comes to reading the Bible, it's easy to get confused because you're like, I don't know where any of this is taking place. I couldn't tell you where Bethany is in relation to Jerusalem. I don't know where Galilee is in relationship to the Jordan River. I don't know where the Philistines and the Hivites lived and why Edom matters. I, I, don't, I can't picture any of this. A Bible atlas is really helpful because it will visually help you orient yourself and know left from right, up from down. It's going to help you get a picture in your head of where things are happening. As Jesus is walking around in Jerusalem, a Bible atlas will help you picture what it looks like. You want to know what else is really cool? It's great to be alive today because if you go to YouTube, you can find all kinds of amazing short videos graphically displaying what the Bible describes in words. There are tremendous videos for free on YouTube that will show you exactly what Jerusalem would have looked like, what the temple would have looked like, what uh, the street road to Emmaus looked like, what it would have looked like when Jesus was on the Mount of Beatitudes, what the Valley of Elah would have looked like where David fought Goliath. It's amazing what resources we have today. Brothers and sisters, I want to commend to you these resources because... 
if you want to be found as one who is faithful to rightly divide God's word, you're going to have to not only learn to see and not only learn to read. You're going to have to learn the context. You're going to have to learn how to read things within their wider context. Context really is king. And so I commend these skills to you so that you and I on the final day can be found as those who did their best to present themselves to God as one approved, workmen who have no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Why don't you join me as we pray and we'll call it a night. Father in heaven, for these dear brothers and sisters, I give you thanks. Would you open their eyes to behold wonderful things from your word and allow them to taste and see that your word is sweet and that you, O Lord, are good. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, everybody. See you next week.